welcome back to the University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Wilcox, Communications Generalist here at U of M Extension. Now, in this episode, we're talking about variable rate technology. We have three members of Extension's Nutrient Management team here with us today. Can you each give us a quick introduction? I'm Brad Carlson. I'm an Extension educator. I work out of a regional office in Mankato. Hi, I'm Jeff Vetch. I'm a researcher at the Southern Research and Outreach Center in Wasika. Uh, my name is Daniel Kaiser. I'm a uh, state nutrient management specialist um, specializing in soil fertility and crop nutrient recommendations. I'm located out of the St. Paul campus. What are the reasons that farmers might want to use variable rate fertilizer instead of applying a single rate? Well, I think the, the one of the, the main things a lot of farmers think uh, when, when they first start exploring this is that there's this, these spots in the field where they are not meeting their potential. And, and I think it's, it's, while it's a very basic concept, uh, uh, I think it needs to be uh, thought about uh, purposefully when we're talking about variable rate is that there's really only two ways you're going to pay for this technology. One is to increase your yields uh, and obviously increase your income. And in the absence of that, you need to reduce inputs or, or reduce the expenses that, that are out there. And so that's really uh, ultimately what's going on out there. And so I think from a farmer's standpoint, you need to start thinking about, do I really have parts in the field that are not reaching their full potential? In a lot of cases, when we're talking about fertilizer, uh, most farmers tend to be rather uh, uh, conservative or, or maybe even, I guess, dare I say, aggressive with fertilizer because they want to make sure that they're not uh, leaving yield behind. And in a lot of cases, there just simply aren't those spots in the field that are not reaching their potential due to fertility. And so it's only reasonable that we would not really expect to see yield increases in those areas. And so from that standpoint, farmers need to be willing to take a reduction in fertilizer expenses uh, as the way they're paying off variable rate technology in a lot of cases. And if you're not, uh, if you don't feel comfortable with that, if you're not willing to do that, then in a lot of cases, variable rating, your fertilizer is not going to pay for itself. And so I think that's really kind of the main question a lot of farmers need to ask themselves uh, before engaging in variable rate technology. You know, Brad, I, I agree with what you're saying. The only thing I would add to that is is thinking about, you know, the fields themselves. There are areas of the fields that we just know have lower potential, and it could be related to a lot of things. A great example is what I see in southeast Minnesota where I grew up, where we have the this lust cap soil on top of bedrock. And in some areas of some fields, it's really shallow, and they just don't have the water holding capacity. Or maybe you have a coarse textured soil that that, you know, comes in in a glacial till environment. And identifying those zones of the field that have poor yield potential is another way that you could think about managing that variability. You know, that you're, you're right. There's some areas that, that maybe aren't meeting their yield potential, but maybe they are. But there are others that just have less yield potential and probably require less fertilizer or maybe just different management of that fertilizer. Maybe it's a change in, in application timing of nitrogen. Well, I think the one thing that a lot of farmers know in, in, uh, intuitively is that their best soils produce their best yields, that you can't just simply go to a field that historically doesn't yield as well and just pour more fertilizer on it and make it yield as good as your better soils do. And so from that standpoint, uh, you know, we need to acknowledge the fact that that our yield maps are finding our better soils, which you always knew were more productive. Uh, that's not necessarily a factor of simply pouring on a lot more fertilizer to get those higher yields. Well, and that's one of the things in the recommendation side we struggle with. I know that's one 
you look at some of the research, um, the what some of the, these um, commodity groups want. I mean, a lot of one of the things that comes up more often than not is looking at recommendations for some of these medium and low productivity areas. And it's it's not an easy thing really to look at because that's somewhat you know dependent on the year too. Because we can have areas that you know maybe you know in a normal year more low productivity, but in a you know wet year or excessively dry year might be slightly higher productivity. So it's one of those things that it's it's all really when you start looking at a lot of this variable rate, it's in these fertilization strategy, a lot of times the risk mitigation, you know, question which where, where it boils down to. So it's one of the things I think, you know, on the recommendation side we struggle with because for instance, nitrogen, we have recommendations for what we call medium productivity soils. And to me, I don't know exactly where those numbers came from uh, because if you look at it, you know, honestly, we could go and look at say a non-irrigated sand versus an irrigated sand and say, okay, well, we know that water is going to be the more limiting factor in this particular field that we may not want to put as much fertility to it. And we could, you know, say the same thing maybe within different zones of the fields. But it's one of those those questions that I guess I don't have a clear answer for. So we just have to kind of give recommendations for what we consider to be more normal to area for our areas and, and go with that and then just give the information to growers how, how should you make an adjustment based on specific factors so this you know in this question between uh just a single rate versus a variable rate you know i ran into that just recently just looking at some of the ground i'm helping manage down in iowa and with some of my family's farm with lime where we've got a number of zones where you have essentially the same rate and just maybe one or two zones in the field that may are recommending the slightly less less so it's a kind of just a cost situation with a lot of this stuff just kind of figuring that out and the variable rate since you are likely going to be paying more for your application cost you know is it really worth it in the end with what you're um, what you're trying to manage and you know really I think one of the keys with a lot of the times with variable rate for goals for some growers might be to try to get your fields evened out you know particularly with your P and K levels you might get to a point where you may not uh, need need to look at it but certainly the the nice thing about it right now is just to know what variability is out there particularly with questions we get with fertilizer prices being high um, give them some options if you're looking at cutting some costs in there and that's you know certainly that's that's really where I think variable rate shines is you've got some of those options maybe to look at uh, some reductions in cost i think the other area that that's uh is worth discussing is and jeff alluded to poor producing soils particularly shallow soils and areas with coarse textured soils now, there are definitely environmental concerns in some places and the ability to be more prescriptive uh, with with both rates as well as application practices uh, to have less impact on the environment is definitely something that I think we all know is out in our future. I mean, at the moment, we don't really have any requirements to to be managing in that way, but the, the variable rate technologies and the application technologies are going to allow us to be more prescriptive with our inputs in the future you know from that standpoint there definitely are some farmers who are out there with that mindset that that's what they're trying to accomplish and so from an environmental standpoint uh, that's a good thing also I think for the the uh, the majority of farmers who are kind of just still going from year to year you know trying to be profitable um, I think part of what we need to be accomplishing from our side is uh, getting some comfort level in this technology and the ability to do this in a prescriptive way and not hurt yield. And so, um, you know, that's that's a, a big part of, of where our efforts have been too uh, over the last, uh, you know, the last decade or so. Is there a difference between variable rating different nutrient types? 
You know, this is a kind of a good question because a lot of times when we think of variable rate, we know that we can use it for multiple nutrients, both uh, N, P, and K. But really, in terms of differences between those two, it's really how you get to the end goal or the end point of your recommendation. And, you know, certainly with P and K management with a soil test, um, you know, gives us more flex, or I wouldn't say really flexibility. I mean, we have much uh, greater breadth of data with P and K in terms of what the, the, the number you're getting back from that lab means. And, you know, certainly, you know, nitrogen, we're, we're seeing a lot of um, interest in variable rate nitrogen. It's been a bigger question for us on the research end. How do we get to that point um, where we can assign or assign a value in terms of how much nitrogen to supply, whether it's um, aerial imaging or soil test or some other factor you're, you're really trying to use. And it really, a lot of the difference comes back to the, the nutrients themselves and how they're held in the soil with P and K, we know a lot of times we consider them to be able to be banked in the soil where they can be stored. It's, you know, not a perfect storage solution the soil is for P and K, although we know that if you overapply, your soil test will increase. Um, but um, we know that there can be some loss parameters if you get to a certain point as well. And I'm not going to really dig into some of that, um, but it's one of those things that I think really when it comes down to it, uh, producer goals really in mind is where we tend to see a lot of difference, particularly with P and K. Um, you start looking at a lot of them where they're, you know, where I get this this era that um, people are consider this advanced management to be this uh, variable rate based on yield maps and crop removal, which, you know, to me, that's, you know, less advanced than anything else because you're just taking one factor times another and it's the easiest solution to do. It, and it's really not the most advanced one out there. But, um, you know, that's that's kind of the thing with it. Uh, you know, P and K, we know we have that that database behind it um, to tell us, you know, or if it's risk assessment of, of what nutrients supply should be from the soil to that given crop and how much um, that should need to be applied um, as more of a risk assessment tool. So that's kind of, the, I think, the difference between the, them is just essentially the way the nutrients behave in the soils and you know how we can utilize the information we have in terms of making a variable rate decision. And one of the ways I like to frame this to, to farmers or ag professionals is that really variable rate is just a series of rate uh, decisions as you move across the field. It's just, it's it's no more complicated than determining a single rate uh, for a field, except you're doing it multiple times, uh, hopefully with different uh, types of information as you move along that change what your decision will be as you go. And so it's important for producers to remember that that those decisions need to be made appropriately. You know, we know that we don't store nitrogen in the soil. So we, you know, we'll use soil testing for P and K and pH decisions. Um, and then to some extent, there's been uh, some people have wanted to use uh, yield maps for crop removal, uh, but uh, uh, getting back to what I talked about, that that uh, your best soils produce your best yields, uh, that doesn't always correlate with what's happening uh, from, from extraction of nutrients from the soil. And I think very particularly if you're using a, a, a yield map for producing a um, producing a variable rate nitrogen prescription, that's really a misuse of the technology. Uh, uh, you know, we've gone a long ways as far as discussing um, and, and convincing the 
agriculture as a whole that we don't simply base our nitrogen rate decision based on yield potential. That was an old technology that we went away from 20 years ago. Yet, uh, if if you're taking a yield map and you're producing a variable rate nitrogen map just simply based on the yield out in the field, you're actually doing that. You're going backwards 20 years to where we were in making nitrogen rate decisions. And we know that there's a lot of factors that go into what the optimum nitrogen rate is just simply beyond what the total yield is. And so uh, from that standpoint, uh, you, you also need to be, think really critically about what it is that you're doing and how the whole thing works. We've had some discussions internally, too. That was when I first started here in Minnesota back around 2008 about, you know, particularly phosphorus. You know, do we have higher yield potentials from high testing soils? Because that would be kind of more that advanced management approach of trying to push for higher soil tests to push for greater management. And what we've seen is that, um, you know, there's no more if you take a, a, the same soil, a low versus high test, I mean, the yield potential is still there if you fertilize accordingly. It just depends on where the, the plant's extracting its nutrients from, whether it be fertilizer from the soil. So that's kind of one of these things. I mean, again, I get this this error that, you know, you need to really be pushing more and more and more fertilizer for higher yield potentials. And as Brad said, we look at a lot of the data. You know, I look at particularly nitrogen. Um, we look at, you know, tying our, our optimal rate to our yield, and there's absolutely no, no connection between the two. Um, so so if you look at it in terms of, um, you know, where you have high yield potentials, there's there's other things that go on. And, you know, certainly nutrients are part of that, but it isn't the only factor that impacts your overall yield potential. So that's one of the things I think that's, um, you know, it's kind of forgotten about because nutrient management fertilizer application is something that can be controlled. I mean, we can actually control it. You can apply nutrients. Yet I think the understanding is, and it's what we've tried to do with a lot of our recommendations, is at least to provide some of the information behind what's that probability of response, particularly with P and K. So if you're applying fertilizer at a given soil test value, what is that percentage chance that that fertilizer is actually increasing yield? And on average, and what would be my yield or my potential yield loss without fertilizer application? And some of that data for phosphorus is in the corn and soybean boltons right now. So you can look at that and you, you kind of look at it because that's really what you look at variable rate. It should be more of a risk assessment. It should be putting it where you need it and where you don't need it, cutting back to save on costs and, and you know, getting that uh, information out to grow. I think we've been a good job selling fertilizer with a lot of our uh, research. If you go back 30, 40 years with extension, it's one of the things I know my dad always talked about with some of his ground. He, it was low at one time and he saw the benefit to it. So he just continued to do the same thing over and over again for years. And it's one of those things. Now we have management options where we can look at being more prescriptive. And I think that's it's one of the, the advantages, particularly variable rate offers us. Yeah. To add to what you said, Dan, I, I think that we know there's nutrients that interact with one another. I mean, nitrogen and sulfur is a great example, uh, potassium and nitrogen. But if your sulfur or nitrogen is applied at well above, uh, you know, limit or limiting levels or well above the optimum levels, then that interaction goes away. I mean, just applying three times what the amount of sulfur you need is not going to make your nitrogen more effective. So it's there's it's more when they're less when they're less than limiting that it's an issue and not when they're above critical values. What are the technologies that are used to prescribe variable rate fertilizer and what's the theory behind them? Well, we've talked about already the the fact that uh, that some of the things we variable rate are just simply soil test based, and so that's pretty simple and straightforward. If you're looking at a P and K test, uh, uh, if you're looking at applying variable rate lime based on your your pH map, uh, uh, that's very fairly simple. 
Um, you know, we know that that sulfur application does not always correlate with soil test value, and that may be a little more complicated. Although uh, there are soil factors that do play into that, and so uh, using some soil information from that standpoint also may be useful if you've really got a good handle on your fields. It's really uh, nitrogen that's kind of the the wild wild west. Uh, there's there's all sorts of things that have been used. There's active and passive sensors that look at the health of the crop uh, in season to make recommendations. Uh, we've we've used crop models uh, extensively to try and predict what the needs are, uh, you know, sort of a, a math equation, uh, what's out there versus what the demand is, therefore how much else is needed in order to get us to the end uh, in line of, of uh, optimum yield. Uh, and then there's also been the, the theory for using soil testing for nitrogen uh, primarily in season. And uh, all of these technologies have shown some potential, but they've also all got uh, uh, some some disadvantages and and so uh, you know I think the the key is to understand um, how each of these work um, I, I've had a lot of experience with the crop models uh, you know in terms of at least looking at using the recommendations on those and in a lot of cases I've been fairly impressed with those however what we've kind of found out is that they're Kind of disappearing from the marketplace they're not being uh, used as much and some of these seem to be doing a, a fairly accurate job of accounting for you know particularly what the weather has been like uh, um, and then making some fairly accurate predictions on how much nitrogen is necessary um, these are just simply modeling crop growth and and potential and and taking some soil factors into account in a lot of cases uh, long term uh, these models were designed also to look at yield history and so to some extent they're able to uh, account for you know what I've already talked about a couple times you're better producing soils uh, not by necessarily defining what makes them better producing but just simply defining that they are better producing because of their their track record and their history you know long term I still think this has a lot of potential but in the short term uh, these products have really started to to kind of go backwards in the marketplace you know some of the other technologies and all we've we've all worked extensively with the uh Preside dress nitrate test. Uh, that is something that does have some potential as far as looking at the status of nitrogen in season. Uh, but there's some drawbacks to that, you know, particularly if we've already applied a base rate of fertilizer. Whether you've accurately accounted for that uh, with a soil test and and how that plays into the the status in season and therefore how much extra you need, you know some of the um, you know some of the systems that have had manure on them may be a little bit uh, better suited to that technology. Uh, and then in addition to that, in corn on corn situations, particularly where there's a lot of residue, we know there can be immobilization of nitrogen, and the soil nitrate test only picks up nitrate. So if that that nitrogen gets tied up in some biological process it's not finding it and accurately predicting what's out there so uh, there's been some downfalls in that uh, I know uh, Dan and Jeff you guys could could maybe chime in on some of your experience with that Dan I know you're continuing to work with the pre-side dress nitrate test I know Fabian's also looking at this uh, and uh, both of you also have experience with with sensors I think one of the challenges you know we have we look at really 
with a lot of these applications is timing and, you know, logistics, I know does factor a lot into growers decisions in terms of what they do. And that's one of the challenges I look at, um, you know, particularly some of this in-season work is, you know, can you get the information you need to help you make the decision, then also be able to apply what you need at a given point in time to where, where it's not going to be too late. Because I know, Jeff, some of the data you you and Giles Randall collected, that's been, you know, close to, well, it's almost been close to 20 years ago. I mean, some of that stuff in the early 2000s, I mean, you can kind of see some instances where, you know, really didn't want to go too late, but, um, you know, it, it's there, especially with, with some of the in-season applications. So that's one of the challenges, particularly when I look at, you know, some of the work we've done with aerial imaging is, you know, can you, you know, first of all, effectively see what that you're going to find at the end of the season with the nitrogen rate you're applying. So if I take a nitrogen rate response curve, there's a deviation in color correlated positively to what I see in terms of a deviation in yield at the end of the season. And that's been the challenge, particularly if we look at um, the minority of Minnesota, let's say central and southern Minnesota, is that with the amount of nitrate we have in the profile and, you know, some of the other factors that we have with some of the, fer- the amount of fertilizers being applied, being able to see that, um, being able to detect the differences that we're going to be reflective of the yield dif- differentials at the end of the season is extremely difficult. I've seen it in the northwestern part of the state around, if you look at in the Red River Valley, you can get a l- yellowing earlier on that um, the, the crop can show that that seems to be better correlated to yield at the end of the season. But if you start seeing some of that severe yellowing have you already lost yield that's been one of the challenges with management in season is we need something that gives us something like we see with p and k with the soil test where it gives us a risk assessment and the psnt um, the pre-side risk nitrate test hasn't been perfect uh, because it's what i call more of a qualitative test Um, you get to a certain point we know you're probably okay Um, if you're under that point you know you probably need to apply something but can you quantify how much you need to apply that becomes uh, you know very difficult Um, we're looking at what i've been looking at has been the pre-plant nitrate test to as a way to look at adjusting my N rate because what we've seen um, in a lot of our studies is that with a split versus pre-plant application in, in several of the studies that took the same amount of nitrogen, whether we split it or put it all on pre-plant. So if I know it's going to take the same amount of nitrogen, if I have something that tells me essentially a, a similar sort of adjustment factor, then I could go with a split application, hopefully adjust within field, the thing it's not a perfect system because nitrogen is so complex. And that's one of the things when I look at a lot of these crop models, you struggle with all those components that go into the input and output sides of that nitrogen cycle. You can make a lot of assumptions based on them, but there's always errors associated with that assumptions. And as you add those errors up, it just the predictability becomes less and less. And I don't know if that's something of what some of these companies have seen. Have you seen some of these come off the market uh, more recently? But um, it's been a challenge if we had that um that factor you know it'd be less for us to do i guess here on the research side yeah dan you mentioned the the uh the issues with some of these later season samplings and that gets back to the sensor work that we did um, back in the early 2000s where we started using the active sensors and we looked at how late can we sense and how late can we detect differences and what's the the um the best calibration of using that data to know that there is going to be a a difference that's going to affect yield. And one of the challenges that we had to deal with was, you know, if we were sensing out there in a corn after bean field and it had even a modest or very low rate of N to start with, and we were sensing at V6 or V7 or V8, 
um, which is the time that, you know, you could still probably get through the field maybe with conventional equipment. We couldn't see much for differences, and we certainly couldn't calibrate them into a, an algorithm that would be effective at predicting the amount of N that would be needed at that point. So what's the alternative? Well, you go later. You wait later and later and later. But then you have the challenge, as you mentioned, Dan, that that you can't recover some of that yield. Maybe that fertilizer end, if it's applied at V14 or later, doesn't get in the plant and or the plant has already been deficient long enough that it hurts yield. And not only did we see that 15, 20 years ago, but our colleague was just talking, Yushin, who's our uh, nutrient management precision ag person here at the U of M. He was talking about this at a meeting last week that some of their sites this last year, two years that they've seen the same thing where they were out there uh, putting applications on that were a little bit later than typical and that they didn't see that response or they couldn't recover that yield and it actually hurt yield a little bit. So, so yeah, that's one of the challenges if you're going to use imagery or you're going to use sensors to make these in-season applications or variable rate applications is trying to fit those into timing. As you said, Dan, the logistics of doing that, how many acres can you do that on? Um, how many days do you have to do that on? That's all a challenge. And that's that's a big hurdle. And that's not going to go away. That hurdle is always going to be there. I think one of the other concepts that, that uh, is worth thinking about is, and we've talked about this already, uh, some of our our poor producing soils or or challenging soils, uh, actually some of those sites may be much more amenable to predicting the total nitrogen rate that, uh, you know, one of the things that we've had to address in Minnesota is that some of the data is coming in from other parts of the country where soils just simply don't have the yield potential we have. They don't have the soil organic matter. Uh, there may be other limiting factors. And, and in a lot of cases, uh, there is just a linear response to nitrogen based on on crop potential that that's very predictable. Uh, for instance, if you're in central Missouri, uh, that that we don't see in Minnesota with high organic matter, and then also if you've got adequate drainage, uh, you know that's it's really a, an unknown what the soil is going to supply, but in a lot of cases, it's going to supply a lot, and so it's 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 very difficult to know exactly what that is. However. You know, some of our sandy soils, you know, particularly in places like where we're, we're uh, using irrigation and so forth, some of those soils uh, may actually uh, have a lot higher potential to be using some of these technologies than, I guess, what we would consider our, our prime agricultural soils in Minnesota. Yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying, Brad. I was thinking the same thing that, you know, maybe you don't you don't try to do every field. Maybe you target fields that have been problematic in the past and have a lot of variability and maybe you do a combination of practices that may include variable rate, but really maybe it's maybe from a nitrogen standpoint, I got a field that's problematic in the past. Maybe it's got poor drainage and I'm just plan I plan a side dress application on that field and then use some kind of imagery or sensor data or something or other to decide, do I put on a conventional rate that would meet my total rate? Maybe I put on 40 pounds or maybe that there's a certain area of that field that looks much worse than others that has yield potential that I could get back if I put on a higher rate. And it, it may be a make it simpler and not try to make it so complicated. Well, I think the other thing, Jeff, you could throw in there, too, with, you know, when you look at yield potential in fields is maybe looking at land tenure, too. If you've got rented ground, you want to have areas where you want to cut back on that might be a good spot to look at, you know, certainly variable rates going to cost you more, but if you can, you know, save on at least fertilizer costs in some areas to cover that cost, at least to try to maximize 
profitability. It might be something you want to do. But, um, you know, I want to get back to another point here, too. When we start looking at technology, I remember you know, we started talking a lot about variable rate nitrogen. I think the number one thing a lot of growers were talking about or a lot of consultants were we're looking at organic matter maps in fields as, you know, measuring min um, the mineralization of nitrogen and the potential nitrogen available to the crop. But, you know, the, you know, the more and more I think about that, you look at across the state of Minnesota is why do we have this variation in organic matter within fields? I mean, certainly we know that, you know, erosion does come into play on hot and hilltops. We're likely going to have less organic matter. You may have a more, but you may, really what it boils down to when I look at a lot of these fields, it really boils down to drainage. So if you look at nitrogen, you look at lower areas of the field, we're likely going to have higher organic matter. Well, why is that? It's likely because that organic matter isn't breaking down as quickly because it's there's they're waterlogged and you just can't get the amount of um, mineralization in those areas. And you likely see more denitrification. So I could probably make the argument that some of those areas that are higher organic matter may need more nitrogen than less nitrogen. Um, just um, and just simply you looking at mineralization as a factor of organic matter. While if I do it in the lab where I control my aeration of the soil, I don't have waterlogged soils, I get a nice relationship. It probably doesn't work in the field. So again, it's not, we're, we're looking at a lot of these times, or I'll go back to the comment I had before, where we look at this advanced management, where you're over, you're really, to me, oversimplifying a lot of things. And it's it's really not what I would call, you know, advanced management when it comes to some of this, this stuff. I mean, really, to me, advanced management would be looking at each area of your field and making a decision on a an area by area basis using a, a number of factors, not just uh, some simple factors to try to make predictions on what that crop's going to need. If farmers fertilize at a variable rate, how should they evaluate the outcomes? You know, I think that we've, it's been mentioned before, you know, you got to think about the economics. It's not going to be free. But I think first you also think about what's their goal. So if their goal is say they acquired a new piece of land and it's got a lot of variability. Maybe they did grid sampling and they've identified that the P and K soil tests are all over the board and they're very high in one area and low in another area. Do they want to even that field out? Is that their goal? If that's the case, that might work quite well um, with variable rate. There might be an opportunity over a period of a couple application series to make that field more uniform. But then the other part of it is getting back to what Brad said earlier is there yield out there that they think they're losing or missing? And can they garner or get that yield back? Or is it the opposite? If there's areas of the field that have extraordinarily high soil tests and they could reduce inputs in those areas, those are really the only two ways that they're going to increase profits by doing this variable rate application. And if you're not going to increase profit, you're not going to pay for the cost of that method. So it comes down to economics, but it also is kind of their management style. If they see as making that field more uniform in P and K, reducing risk, and that's their that's their risk avoidance method, maybe they don't care if it if it costs a little bit more. But it really comes down to either you're increasing yields or you're reducing inputs if you're going to have an effect on economics. And I think I guess getting to a technical standpoint for evaluating this stuff, if a farmer wants to uh, to to really scientifically look at does this pay or am I getting a higher yield and so forth, you're going to just need to use leave some strips behind in the field where you do a, a single rate across your variable rate applications perfectly capable of applying a single rate on a strip across the field. You know, identify where those strips are, uh, have them randomized uh, in in the field to make them represent 
representative and then uh, just come back and do a yield uh, estimate and, and make sure you incorporate all those costs into there. The cost of, of what it paid to, to do the technology, whether that's grid soil sampling or whether you, you purchased some nitrogen uh, uh, recommendation, uh, whether it's a software or other technology imaging, uh, whatever that might be, uh, take the cost of the technology into effect as well as the cost of making that supplemental fertilizer application versus you know just what a single rate would have cost you to put on across the field. And then look at your yield. And, and in a lot of cases, like we've already talked about, uh, you're maybe not going to see a yield increase. And so then you need to, to really do some complex economics across that uh, across those strips and see uh, whether or not the, there was an economic advantage uh, to using that variable rate technology. You know, we're I, I at least I personally I'm not going to commit to to Jeff and Dan, but uh, I've been willing to help farmers with making those evaluations. I've I've uh, looked at a lot of yield maps over the years um and and uh put them into my software and and come up with some yield differences between variable rate and and flat rate and uh and help do that analysis and i still uh, uh remain willing to do that because at this point the demand does not exceeded the amount of time i have available that could be different in the future but uh, for now uh, i'm willing to extend that offer you know the the other area that i think uh also needs to be addressed in this and is is that um, we'll hear reports of reductions in, in fertilizer use based on a variable rate technology. And, and sometimes those of us at the university will say, yeah, well, the guy reduced his rate from some excessive rate down to what we were recommending all along. Um, is that actually a result uh, when, when you could have just simply been following our recommendations? Uh, I'm willing to take the W on that. I guess if a farmer was not comfortable uh, for some reason or another and wanted to apply a higher rate, and now some technologies made uh, made him comfortable with with following recommendations, and the end result was a reduction in in fertilizer application and increased profits. Uh, it was real. It happened. Um, you know, in the long run, though, I guess uh, if if that turns out to be a high percentage of what we're seeing for results in this, I guess maybe we'll need to kind of step back and reevaluate. Well, and I look at, you know, a lot of the work I do is with P and K. I mean, obviously, I've done a little bit of work with nitrogen, um, but overall, I mean, the bulk of the work I do is looking at um, correlating soil test values to crop response. And you get beyond a certain point. You mean well, let's say what we call the critical level, the the probability that you're going to get a yield increase to that fertilizer you're applying is maybe less than 1%. And uh, so you're looking at essentially being in near maximum yield. So if you look at, you know, from the standpoint of variable rate where I get to these more advanced systems where they're just, you know, taking yield map and multiplying it by a factor and crop removal... I mean, you're you're likely at a point at which essentially that fertilizer is giving you absolutely nothing, and in in terms of a yield increase, so it's more of a insurance policy than you're going to be at maximum yield potential on a year by year basis. So that's the thing you gotta you gotta think about with this. And I, again, I know, I mean, when you start looking at the portion of your yield is going to be attributed to your nutrients, but really what the soil test, if you look at breaking your categories down, I mean, if you look at that low, very low. Um, medium, high, very high, that's really, you know, you look at that being the potential or, or equating to the potential that the soil will be able to supply all the given nutrients that that crop's going to need within a given year. So, you know, very high class, there's a very high probability that you will need no fertilizer for that particular area. So that's one of the things 
to think about. And again, you know, you look at on the, the retailer side, I mean, I see a crop removal push pretty hard in some of these areas. Um, again, I mean, I, I guess I can see, you know, it makes sense, um, you know, where we know how much we're taking off roughly, you know, applying that removal rate. And a lot of growers will ask me, you know, is this economic? And really, I don't really see the economics for fertilization until you get beyond what we deem to be the critical level. So for bray phosphorus, I mean, you look at somewhere around 20 part per million of potassium. We're working on that right now. But if you're in a high clay soil, you know, less than 200 part per million, if you're in kind of a medium, more of a silt loam to sand, you can, you know, likely survive on less in the soil because they're different in how they hold the potassium. So it's the thing to really think about is those probabilities. And if you're at such a low probability of response, I mean, really looking at, um, you know, applying more fertilizer isn't going to increase yield if you're already near that critical level. So really, in terms of what you're looking at, it's more of a cost savings approach and trying to put it where it's needed and put it where it's not. And yeah, I guess the, the recently with the fertilizer prices, you know, I've really been pushing a lot of growers to look at their potash levels or their potassium levels in their fields because I think there's some under fertilization going on there. And the thing I hear about that is, well, it's expensive. And, you know, you look at it, there's really, I don't think really any cheap fertilizer sources really right now. So, you know, it's really trying to get, you know, what you're going to get the most benefit for in that particular area of the fields and I, you know, really reduce back on what's going to give you less of a benefit. So, so it's really the thing it's looking at it. It's, we've got a lot of information right now and on some of these, these nutrients that we can supply to growers. If you really want to look at some of these numbers, you just have to, and I've got a more, a lot of confidence, particularly in our phosphorus values. If you're making a decision based on, on some of that, um, and reducing in some areas that you're likely not going to see much of a yield effect. I think some growers are starting to see that and, really starting to work with more and more now that are cutting back in some of the areas, particularly in high testing areas and really avoiding some of those areas to try to, to put the the money or their investment in an area that's going to make them more profit on a yearly basis. Yeah. And getting back to that, to what something Brad said, Dan, in, in that regard is when you look at phosphorus and nitrogen, but you know, we have environmental concerns with those nutrients as well. So if you back off on that phosphorus in that high soil testing area, that's very high or well above the critical value, not only are you saving money uh, by not applying the expensive fertilizer there, but you're also probably going to have a minimal or to positive environmental effect as well in that, in that same area. Any last words from the group? Well, the one thing I guess I'd like to say is uh, remember that uh, every year needs to be considered on its own merits. And so this really with uh, evaluating anything that you are uh, looking at on the farm, uh, uh, you need to think about what the previous year was like uh, growing conditions wise and other things that you experience when you're evaluating the results. And so the same thing uh, certainly applies to variable rate technology. Uh, you know, like for instance, this last year was extraordinarily dry. If you were managing because you had some of these uh, uh, coarse textured soils in a field, the odds are those areas just burned up because there wasn't a lot of moisture. We ended up with some pretty good yield and most of our heavier textured soils, but but the, the, those areas uh, were not really a factor of how you manage your fertilizer. It was just simply too dry. Similarly, when we have a really wet year, you'll have some drown out spots where your, your drainage may not have been adequate and so forth. Uh, I remember a project I was involved in many years ago uh, when we were at the end of the year, we were looking at the yield map and I asked a guy, uh, why did the did the yield really go to zero here? What What's, what's happening? And he said, well, my herbicide failed and uh, yeah actually the giant ragweed got so tall the yield really did go to zero in that spot 
And to which my response was, well, can then we, we really accurately say what happened in any of this field if the weed control was that bad? Uh, and so you do need to, to kind of use your own senses and, and uh, you know, filter your own knowledge as far as how you're evaluating this stuff. And I'm going to put a plug in here for soil testing. You know, I mean, that's obviously it's what I do, but um, it's what we see happening right now is people foregoing that and just going to the easy button route and just doing crop removal. And with potassium, you know, we know right now there's not technically any environmental issues with that. Although, you know, over application, we have seen some problems, particularly with potash. It's a, you know, topic for another day. Just talk about that. But phosphorus too, you know, you get to a certain point where, you know, soluble phosphorus can be an issue, whether it's, you know, coming from runoff or even through through, um, leaching. I mean, you get to a certain point, we know that we can see some phosphorus start to move through the tile drains that, you know, most cases or in all cases, and we start getting those problems are well above what we consider to be the um, the soil test that's agronomically justifiable in terms of where we see above and below or we see a crop response with it. So that's one of the things. It's just nice to have that information and know where you're at and just um, foregoing that and just applying removal year after year. I mean, one of the things I really want to say that removal does not equal maintenance. Uh, what we tend to see with crop removal rates is we tend to see the slow build over time in many of our soils, particularly you get to that medium and high class that, um, you know, you think that, well, I just put on what was removed. Well, you don't really know how much was removed because you're not measuring the amount in that grain and that that number can vary annually. So, you know, we look at our data where we've applied exact removal. Again, we see a slow build. So, you know, decoupling that maintenance and removal is really, um, you know, one of the things we have to do. And really the best thing to do is just have that soil test information because then at least I know the probability of what you're going to get for a crop response within those given areas. So again, I mean, I'd like to see that more and more. You don't necessarily need to be grid sampling, but it just having, having a starting point from a field is kind of a good thing to do to at least know where you're at roughly and, and help you make a decision um, for this or for future years. Yeah. The other thing I would add to is, is if you're using precision uh, ag technologies, whether it's imagery or drones, uh, uh, sensors, any of those things, and you identify an area of the field that you think has an issue, um, go out there and validate. You know, you're going to have to still do some in-field scouting to make sure that that issue or concern is what you think it is. Is it really a nitrogen deficiency, or is it got poor stand, or is it got poor weed control? All those things. You know, some of these tools can be effective at identifying where to look and to take a soil sample, take a tissue sample of the plant or something like that, if it's at the appropriate growth stage, and try to try to do some other diagnostics to help confirm that it is what you think it is, uh, and don't just assume it's something and that I'm going to go out there and put more nitrogen on or more something or, or do something else and correct that problem because it may be related to some other issue. Yeah, that's a good point, Jeff. Yellow, there's a lot of things that can cause the plant to turn yellow. So you've got to kind of understand that, not just assume it. And that's one of the issues with remote sensing right now is you see yellow, and you, but you need a little boots on the ground just to know what that issue might be. All right. That about does it for this episode of the Nutrient Management Podcast. We'd like to, of course, thank the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, or AFREC, for supporting the podcast. Thanks for listening.